Chapters twenty seven and twenty eight of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter twenty seven. A glance at Papeete. We are sent aboard the frigate. The village of Papeete struck us all very pleasantly. Lying in a semicircle round the bay, the tasteful mansions of the chiefs and foreign residents impart an air of tropical elegance, heightened by the palm trees waving here and there, and the deep green groves of the breadfruit in the background. The squalid huts of the common people are out of sight, and there is nothing to mar the prospect. All round the water extends a wide, smooth beach of mixed pebbles and fragments of coral. This forms the thoroughfare of the village, the handsomest houses all facing it, the fluctuations of the tides being so inconsiderable. Footnote. The Newtonian theory concerning the tides does not hold good at Tahiti, where, throughout the year, the waters uniformly commence ebbing at noon and midnight, and flow about sunset and daybreak. Hence the term tuerar po is used alike to express high water and midnight. End footnote. That they cause no inconvenience. The Pritchard residence, a fine large building, occupies a site on one side of the bay. A green lawn slopes off to the sea, and in front waves the English flag. Across the water, the tricolor also, and the stars and stripes, distinguish the residences of the other consuls. What greatly added to the picturesqueness of the bay at this time was the condemned hull of a large ship, which at the farther end of the harbor lay bilged upon the beach, its stern settled low in the water, and the other end high and dry. From where we lay, the trees behind seemed to lock their leafy boughs over its bowsprit, which from its position looked nearly upright. She was an American whaler, a very old craft. Having sprung a leak at sea, she had made all sail for the island to heave down for repairs. Found utterly unseaworthy, however, her oil was taken out and sent home in another vessel. The hull was then stripped and sold for a trifle. Before leaving Tahiti, I had the curiosity to go over this poor old ship, thus stranded on a strange shore. What were my emotions when I saw upon her stern the name of a small town on the river Hudson? She was from the noble stream on whose banks I was born, in whose waters I had a hundred times bathed. In an instant, palm trees and elms, canoes and skiffs, church spires and bamboos, all mingled in one vision of the present and the past. But we must not leave little jewel. At last, the wishes of many were gratified, and like an aeronaut's grapnel, her rusty little anchor was caught in the coral groves at the bottom of Papati Bay. This must have been more than forty days after leaving the Marquesas. The sails were yet unfurled when a boat came alongside with our esteemed friend Wilson, the consul. "'How's this? How's this, Mr. German?' he began, looking very savage as he touched the deck. "'What brings you in without orders?' You did not come off to us as you promised, sir, and there was no hanging on longer with nobody to work the ship, was the blunt reply. So the infernal scoundrels held out, did they? Very good. I'll make them sweat for it. And he eyed the scowling men with unwanted intrepidity. 
The truth was, he felt safer now than when outside the reef. "'Muster the mutineers on the quarter-deck,' he continued. "'Drive them aft, sir, sick and well. I have a word to say to them.' "'Now, men,' said he, "'you think it's all well with you, I suppose. You wished the ship in, and here she is. Captain Guy's ashore, and you think you must go too. But we'll see about that. I'll miserably disappoint you.' These last were his very words." Mr. German, call off the names of those who did not refuse duty, and let them go over to the starboard side. This done, a list was made out of the mutineers, as he was pleased to call the rest. Among these, the doctor and myself were included, though the former stepped forward and boldly pleaded the office held by him when the vessel left Sydney. The mate also, who had always been friendly, stated the service rendered by myself two nights previous, as well as my conduct when he announced his intention to enter the harbour. For myself, I stoutly maintained that according to the tenor of the agreement made with Captain Guy, my time aboard the ship had expired, the cruise being virtually at an end, however it had been brought about, and I claimed my discharge. But Wilson would hear nothing. Marking something in my manner, nevertheless, he asked my name and country, and then observed with a sneer, Ah, you are the lad, I see, that wrote the round robin. I'll take good care of you, my fine fellow. Step back, sir. As for poor Longghost, he denounced him as a Sydney flash-gorger, though what under heaven he meant by that euphonious title is more than I can tell. Upon this, the doctor gave him such a piece of his mind that the consul furiously commanded him to hold his peace or he would instantly have him seized into the rigging and flogged. There was no help for either of us. We were judged by the company we kept. All were now sent forward, not a word being said as to what he intended doing with us. After a talk with the mate, the consul withdrew, going aboard the French frigate, which lay within a cable's length. We now suspected his object, and, since matters had come to this pass, were rejoiced at it. In a day or two the Frenchman was to sail for Valparaiso, the usual place of rendezvous for the English squadron in the Pacific, and doubtless Wilson meant to put us on board and send us thither to be delivered up. Should our conjecture prove correct, all we had to expect, according to our most experienced shipmates, was the fag end of a cruise in one of Her Majesty's ships and a discharge before long at Portsmouth. We now proceeded to put on all the clothes we could, frock over frock and trousers over trousers, so as to be in readiness for removal at a moment's warning. Armed ships allow nothing superfluous to litter up the deck, and therefore, should we go aboard the frigate, our chests and their contents would have to be left behind. In an hour's time, the first cutter of the Rhine Blanche came alongside, manned by eighteen or twenty sailors, armed with cutlasses and boarding pistols, the officers, of course, wearing their side-arms, and the consul, in an official cocked hat, borrowed for the occasion. The boat was painted a pirate black, its crew were a dark, grim-looking set, and the officers uncommonly fierce-looking little Frenchmen. On the whole, they were calculated to intimidate, the consul's object, doubtless, in bringing them. Summoned aft again, every one's name was called separately, 
and being solemnly reminded that it was his last chance to escape punishment, was asked if he still refused duty. The response was instantaneous. Aye, sir, I do. In some cases, followed up by divers explanatory observations, cut short by Wilson's ordering the delinquent into the cutter. As a general thing, the order was promptly obeyed, some taking a sequence of hops, skips, and jumps by way of showing not only their unimpaired activity of body, but their alacrity in complying with all reasonable requests. Having avowed their resolution not to pull another rope of the Julia's, even if at once restored to perfect health, all the invalids, with the exception of the two to be set ashore, accompanied us into the cutter. They were in high spirits, so much so that something was insinuated about their not having been quite as ill as pretended. The cooper's name was the last called. We did not hear what he answered, but he stayed behind. Nothing was done about the Maori. Shoving clear from the ship, three loud cheers were raised, Flash, Jack, and others receiving a sharp reprimand for it from the consul. "'Good-bye, little jewel,' cried Navy Bob as we swept under the bows. "'Don't fall overboard, Ropey,' said another to the poor landlubber, who, with Waimantu, the Dane, and others left behind, was looking over at us from the forecastle. "'Give her three more!' cried Salem, springing to his feet and whirling his hat round. "'You sacre dame rascal!' shouted the lieutenant of the party, bringing the flat of his sabre across his shoulders. "'You now keepy steel!' The doctor and myself, more discreet, sat quietly in the bow of the cutter, and for my own part, though I did not repent what I had done, my reflections were far from being enviable. CHAPTER Twenty Eight: RECEPTION FROM THE FRENCHMAN In a few moments we were paraded in the frigate's gangway, the first lieutenant, an elderly, yellow-faced officer, in an ill-cut coat and tarnished gold lace, coming up and frowning upon us. This gentleman's head was a mere bald spot, his legs sticks. In short, his whole physical vigor seemed exhausted in the production of one enormous mustache. Old Gamboge, as he was forthwith christened, now received a paper from the consul, and, opening it, proceeded to compare the goods delivered with the invoice. After being thoroughly counted, a meek little midshipman was called, and we were soon after given in custody to half a dozen sailor soldiers, fellows with tarpaulins and muskets. Preceded by a pompous functionary, whom we took for one of the ship's corporals from his rattan and the gold lace on his sleeve, we were now escorted down the ladders to the berth deck. Here we were politely handcuffed all round, the man with the bamboo evincing the utmost solicitude in giving us a good fit from a large basket of the articles of assorted sizes. Taken by surprise at such an uncivil reception, a few of the party demurred, but all coyness was at last overcome, and finally our feet were inserted into heavy anklets of iron running along a great bar bolted down to the deck. After this, we considered ourselves permanently established in our new quarters. "'The deuce take their old iron!' exclaimed the doctor. "'If I'd known this, I'd stayed behind.' "'Ha, ha!' cried Flashjack. "'You're in for it, Dr. Longghost.' "'My hands and feet are, anyway,' was the reply. They placed a sentry over us, a great lubber of a fellow, 
who marched up and down with a dilapidated old cutlass of most extraordinary dimensions. From its length, we had some idea that it was expressly intended to keep a crowd in order, reaching over the heads of half a dozen, say, so as to get a cut at somebody behind. Mercy! ejaculated the doctor with a shudder. What a sensation it must be to be killed by such a tool! We fasted till night, when one of the boys came along with a couple of kids containing a thin, saffron-colored fluid, with oily particles floating on top. The young wag told us this was soup. It turned out to be nothing more than an oleaginous warm water. Such as it was, nevertheless, we were fain to make a meal of it, our sentry being attentive enough to undo our bracelets. The kids passed from mouth to mouth and were soon emptied. The next morning, when the sentry's back was turned, someone, whom we took for an English sailor, tossed over a few oranges, the rinds of which we afterward used for cups. On the second day, nothing happened worthy of record. On the third, we were amused by the following scene. A man, whom we supposed a boson's mate, from the silver whistle hanging from his neck, came below, driving before him a couple of blubbering boys, and followed by a whole troop of youngsters in tears. The pair, it seemed, were sent down to be punished by command of an officer, the rest had accompanied them out of sympathy. The boson's mate went to work without delay, seizing the poor little culprits by their loose frocks and using a rattan without mercy. The other boys wept, clasped their hands, and fell on their knees, but in vain. The boson's mate only hit out at them, once in a while making them yell ten times louder than ever. In the midst of the tumult, down comes a midshipman, who, with a great air, orders the man on deck, and running in among the boys, sets them to scampering in all directions. The whole of this proceeding was regarded with infinite scorn by Navy Bob, who, years before, had been captain of the foretop on board a line-of-battle ship. In his estimation, it was a lubberly piece of business throughout. They did things differently in the English Navy. End of chapters 27 and 28. Recording by Tricia G.